From the Allen Slate Radio Institute at the Faculty of Communication and Design, this is the Ryerson Today podcast, where we look at the people, ideas, and culture of Ryerson University. You can also hear it on CJRU 1280 AM. This is Melissa Uvanti for Ryerson Today. As the Me Too movement has spread around the world, there's been a huge change in awareness about sexual assault and consent, and more and more people are coming forward with their stories. Today, we bring you a wide-ranging discussion from two Ryerson women who are a force in this arena. They are changing how Canada deals with sexual assault and how we support survivors, and they have a lot to say on the subject. Farah Khan, the manager of Ryerson's Consent Comes First Office, has put in place new initiatives to educate the public and support survivors. She's recognized nationally for her work in the field. For example, in the spring of 2018, Farah took part in the Gender Equality Council for Canada's G7 presidency. I'm also thrilled to have award-winning journalist Robin Doolittle with us in the studio, a Ryerson alum. Robin's investigative series for The Globe and Mail on how police handle sexual assaults has resulted in major changes in investigations across Canada. Welcome to the studio, Farah and Robin. Thanks for having me. Far, the Consent Comes First office at Ryerson supports survivors of sexual violence and provides programs and resources to increase awareness of these issues. What do you think is the most important thing for students to know about consent? One thing is to know is that our office provides support to anyone affected by sexual violence. So that means if you were sexually assaulted when you were in high school or in grade school by a family member or a teacher or someone that you love and trusted, we would support you. So it doesn't matter when the sexual violence happens, we support people. We also support people who are in a place where they're maybe dating someone who was sexually assaulted and that person was triggered during sex and they're like, what do I do? Or a parent that their child is the first time going to university and they also know that they're a survivor and they're wondering what to do. So we've kind of expanded what's seen as the definition of who gets access to the services. So that's been really important for us. And I think understanding consent, what we really would want people to understand is consent is a dynamic process, that it's not, you know, that kind of contract that you sign and you're like, oh, I signed it. It's good. You know, there's a lot of apps right now that are like, if you just like click this app and then your partner (laughs) clicks this app, everything's good. But it's an anatomic process and it's not just for sex. So we talk about the fact that it's about asking somebody what your gender pronoun is and respecting it. Even, you know, my name's Farah and people sometimes like to call me other ways of pronouncing my name. And I'm like, that's not how I want my name to be called. Or it could be even saying like, can I take your picture or can I post that picture? And it's not because we want to say that consent is only one way, but it isn't just one way. It's multiple ways. And so for students and for staff and faculty, it's understanding that we practice consent every day, not just in our sexual relationships, but in our everyday life. Yeah, I can see how how that's really a key part of learning for new students on post-secondary school campuses. And that that learning of how consent extends out of the bedroom and to many facets of relationships. Robin, in the Unfounded series for the Globe and Mail, you interviewed dozens of women who had been sexually assaulted. The investigation centered on how law enforcement agencies across Canada investigate cases like this. What did you learn about consent in relation to how these cases are treated? I can say that my understanding of consent became much more murky the more that I started working. And I think that that's a big part of the confusion right now is that there's there, there have previously been campaigns that it's like no means no. But that's almost kind of confusing because most people, as I've learned in sexual situations, they're taking cues from people, unspoken cues. And two people can have very different opinions 
on what's happening. And mm-hmm. that's what I really found in so many of the stories that I looked into. You know, I say, I bet if you gave a lie detector test to half of the men, they would not think they did anything wrong. That doesn't mean they didn't do something wrong, but they wouldn't think that they'd done anything wrong. And a lot of this comes back to the way that we grow up learning about sex. I just rewatched the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin recently. Oh, Lord. Mm. Think about like Steve Carell. He's, <laughs> yes. he's, you know, he's a 40-year-old virgin and his friends are trying to get him laid for the first time. And what do they do? They take him to a bar and they tell him to find the drunkest chick there. I don't think that movie would necessarily fly today, but there's so many. Uh, you go back even five, ten years, things that we understand now to be really problematic. Alcohol is a huge complicating factor, especially for university students. I just did the training for our orientation leaders, and I always ask them three questions. I say, okay, how many of you went to high school? Hopefully they're all raising their hands. Right. <laughs> and then the second question is, how many of you had sex ed? Most raise their hands. And then what did you learn in sex ed? And that question is so interesting because most of them learn, you know, pregnancy, how to prevent pregnancy, what to do if they have chlamydia, what does chlamydia look like, gonorrhea. And then maybe if they didn't go to a Catholic school, like at me, they learned what a condom was. Mm -hmm. But if I ask them if they learned about pleasure, relationships, rejection, nobody can raise their hand. And so we're expecting people to understand consent when we don't even talk about the parameters of it. We only talk about the mechanics of sex in a very heterosexual way. Mm. A goes into B. Right. And so we're setting up young people, we're setting up young men to actually not be able to have relationships that won't have some form of sexual violence in them if we don't have these real conversations about it. For sure. And I found that bled over into the policing community. So as you mentioned, I looked into 54 specific cases where people, primarily women, reported to police. And then I looked at what happened to that complaint. And one of the most common problems that I found was that the investigating officer did not have an understanding of the consent laws in Canada. And I, again, kind of go back to pop culture. What I found was so many of these cases, the officer was really hung up on, well, did you say no? Did you resist? Was your clothing torn? And, you know, on one hand, that's totally maddening. And on the other hand, that's really understandable from some perspectives because we're just inundated with that is what it means to be sexually assaulted. In Canada, we have one of the most progressive set of laws and common law court decisions in the world around consent. So this is really important. Uh, In Canada, we have an affirmative consent standard. So it's not whether you say no, it's whether you indicate yes. And indicate yes doesn't mean saying yes, I will have sex with you. It just means that you have indicated to that person that you are a willing participant in the sexual activity. And you don't need to fight back. You don't need to say no for it to be sexual assault. The other thing is we have laws around incapacity. So if someone is so drunk or so high that they are incapacitated or if they're unconscious, they can't consent to sex. It's really tricky for the court system to determine the moment that it crosses between really drunk and incapacitated. But what I found is that police officers weren't taking the investigative steps to gather the evidence so that a crown attorney or a court could figure out whether the person was incapacitated. So it's like, oh, she was really drunk. Oh, this is really messy. You know, I I think it's better if we just kind of that this isn't, you know, a criminal situation. This is two drunk people. 
And what makes that really challenging is that we know that over 50% of sexual assaults involve some form of alcohol. Yeah. We're talking about consent, but we're also talking about how to stay safe when you do go out and, you know, you're living in the city for the first time. You're away from home. This is your first, you know, for a lot of people experience of freedom and, and talk about keeping safe. And, and it, it's a really, like I said, challenging conversation because you don't want to have the conversation where you're saying women shouldn't get drunk because, uh, you know, they're going to be responsible for what happens to them because you don't want to take the onus off of perpetrators. But it is a really dicey conversation. And I do find that people are so nervous about having it that sometimes we just, we're just not having that conversation. Right. I think there's ways to have it that are supportive of the folks. We have to talk about alpaca squads here. You know, when you mess with one, you get the whole herd. And it's like, so I train a lot of the varsity athletes here and across Canada. And one of the things I always talk about is like, if you're going to go to a party, like who's looking out for each other? Mm -hmm. So I guess it is about safety, but is it about community safety more than individual safety? And I think that's what I'm more interested in talking about. Yeah, totally. Making it about community care to be like, how are we going to take care of each other here? I was talking to someone who likened it to, maybe this isn't what you're talking about, but I think it is. When you go out, you have a designated driver. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why not employ that same strategy if you're going out to a party or a bar? And also when we talk these workshops, some of the neatest conversation to have is young men being like, I don't know how to tell my friend that he's being a creeper. Those conversations are really neat. So young men talking about the fact that like, how do they intervene when they're like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Like you're not going to get with her. So why are you keeping Mm -hmm. to do that? Mm -hmm. Or like practicing with each other. Like, how do I tell my friend when you're texting her and threatening her or when you're just being really inappropriate or when you keep pushing on a girl when she said no and you think it's hot, how do I tell my friend like that's not okay? And so that's also something we need to practice as well. How do you tell that's, I want to hear that. What, do you, what are you saying to people about what they can say to their friends? Well, we talk about calling in versus calling out. So we talk about the fact that like telling your friend, like, I really care about you, but this is not helping you. And also like talking to their friends about what actually is going to help them. If they really want to get with somebody, maybe this is not the way to do it. And this one guy was just talking about an example of like, he literally like, pulled his friend aside and he was like, that's not how we're going to act because you actually hurt my chances of meeting women here. And it's not like, you're, I'm not calling you up being like, you're a horrible person, no. die in a no. fire. <laughs> it's like, come here, I'm going to call you in. We're going to sit down. Yeah. We're going to have a conversation. Because yeah. shame, blame and fear doesn't work. And I think that's been the most amazing conversation to have with young men is like, they're like, they don't want to do this stuff. And some of them are doing it. And they don't even realize it because they've been told or sold a bill of goods that that's what being a man is supposed to be like. So we've touched on it. And and now we're coming back around to sexual education in Ontario. How do these issues relate to how we teach kids and teens about sex ed? What do you think about Ford's recent move to repeal the sex ed curriculum in Ontario? For the record, Farah is shaking her head and you can see see steam coming out of her ears. Just to give the listeners a visual here. I'm very irritated with the repeal. Um, Yeah, you know, one of the... Sorry, I just clapped. But I'm just... A lot of feelings. So not only at Ragsden, but again, I, I go across Canada doing these orientation conversations. One of the most valuable conversations I have are with young men after I do the talks. And one of my favorite was a young man who slid into my DMs. And usually when people slide into your DMs, you're thinking they're going to send you some weird stuff. But he actually said... I'm a virgin and my girlfriend isn't, how do I tell her? And that was something that really struck me as that we make a lot of assumptions about young men and their sexuality and how they perform their sexuality. And the conversations I've had with young men that I feel really honored to be a part of, you know, hearing young men say, sometimes I come home from 
my sporting team that I'm a part of, my varsity team, and I don't want to have sex, but there's an understanding that I should want to have sex. So there's an assumption that young men at some, like at the age of 14 or 15 or 16, get this like downloaded manual on what it is to be a man and have sex. Right. Let's be real. The majority of that information comes from the internet. And let's be really precise with that. (laughs) That comes from porn. And Back in my day, we watched VHS <laughs> and porn had a little bit more of a storyline, right. right? Like Pornhub now is like these five second, one minute videos that are just like the money shot. So what are assumptions being put on young men? And the conversation is really interesting. So I think when we don't have comprehensive sex ed, I don't even think the sex ed that exists right now is comprehensive enough. It doesn't give the opportunity for young men to talk about those things. And then when we are setting up populations and communities to be set up to cause harm when we don't give them the right information education. And I don't want to do that. I have four brothers and I love the men in my life and I care about the men in my life. And when they're confused in these moments, I'm like, we haven't done our job. The story that I am totally obsessed with that I use as like a litmus test to talk to everybody is the Aziz Ansari story. And I'd love to talk about it here today because it's super controversial. (laughs) You know, this is the babe.net. I went on a date with Aziz Ansari. It was the worst night of my life. And when I read that story, I thought this is a guy who is just doing what society has told him to do, which is to negotiate for sex. And he's looking for an explicit no, an explicit, I don't want to do this, not like a, and it's not that the the woman, Grace was, you know, her pseudonym, didn't indicate, you know, I'm not really into this, but I think men are told to push, to negotiate. It's an expression of their masculinity. And we demand that of them. Society demands that of them. And then we get upset when they do what we've demanded of them. And it's this big problem that no one wants to talk about because, again, it's in that kind of like, we don't want to give them an inch because they'll take a mile. And it's like, we need to have that inch to talk about it. And they have that role, that that role piece, right? One of my favorite parts in a workshop is when I ask young men how they hit on women. Like we actually have that conversation about flirting. And one guy was like, you know what? I just keep asking her. And I'm like, what if she says no? And he's like, I just keep asking her because that's more of like an adventure. Like that's more of a chase. And I want mm. that, right? Because girls would just say yes right away. Why would I want that? Right. And so that's what they've been taught because we're teaching that sex is a conquest, not a collaboration. And with Aziz Ansari, that story also really upset me. First of all, I didn't appreciate the way that it was written. Oh, no, it was a horrible piece of journalism. What Was it journalism? No, but that's a good point. Like that's, I mean, I'm sort of stepping on your, no. your comment here, but like what infuriated me also about it was there's been incredible journalism to come out of the Me Too movement that's really carefully considered and researched. And as any story would be, if, if you're making a serious accusation about somebody, whether it's sexual misconduct or fraud, the steps that journalists go to to verify those facts and be accurate and fair, and then you have something like this dump into the world. It's a witch no hunt. It's a witch hunt. Mm, yeah. yeah. And he's also a man of color. <laughs> and not just a man of color, but a South Asian man that we desexualize South Asian men all the time, right? And so... He's not going to be able to move within this the same way as I would think a white man would, right? Well, and the other thing about him is he was a came forward as a proud feminist. He wore a Times Up pin. He seemed to be someone who was kind of going out of his way to be a you know quote unquote male ally. And 
you see this with Justin Trudeau as well, where if you're someone who drapes yourself in the feminist banner, then you are held to a higher standard, which isn't necessarily wrong. But I do think we need to step back and, and talk about like, so if a man puts him a flag, a feminist flag around himself, that means he will be attacked for anything that could possibly raise the kind of like hypocrite banner. Mm-hmm. But we're not actually looking at some of the real problematic behavior from other actors. I don't mean literal actors. I mean, people in the world. What would you say are the changes in the recent past on how media is reporting on sexual assault and sexual violence? Would you say Me Too, the Me Too movement has influenced journalists? I don't think it's influenced journalists. And I don't think it should. I think we should have the same rubric for going about doing any story. And this is a story about sexual misconduct, where I think it's maybe changed some of the stories is that journalists are looking at a range of sexual misconduct beyond rape that is worthy of writing about. There's this evolution that's happening right now in terms of the range of sexual misconduct. I just was in New York the other day interviewing Susan Brown Miller, who wrote Against Our Will, which was the first big book on rape, published in 1975. And it was so interesting because before Against Our Will, rape was not viewed as a political, social issue. It was just this deviant, rare crime that no one really talked about or thought about. I was struggling sometimes in the interview with her to to try to think of a world when sexual violence was not kind of top of mind. And she's like, we just didn't talk about it. It just wasn't a thing we thought about. It was this rare thing. We didn't realize it was ubiquitous in the culture. So I guess I'm, I'm bringing this up as this is kind of evidence of us moving along. So what Me Too is, is I think it's moved the bar from like violent rape to other ranges of sexual misconduct. But tools of our trade remain the same, as I said, whether it's a story about sex assault or sexual misconduct or sexual harassment or insider trading or fraud or conflict of interest. We investigate, we give people a proper time to respond, we're fair, we're accurate, we try to get multiple perspectives, we try to find as many sources as possible, there's a high bar for publication. I think one thing that's interesting, I hear a lot of complaints from people saying that Canadian media hasn't done a good enough job in exposing some of these stories in the way that American outlets have done. And I'm kind of like, I hear you, but at the same time, our bar doesn't change because the Me Too movement is happening. We still have a threshold. And if we mess up, it screws everything up. And you saw that, I think, with the Z's Ansari. The Globe recently published by my colleague Anne Hui, a story about Norm Hardy, the famed winemaker. And she spent, I don't even know, how, like months and months and months and months and months and months and months on that story. And it's a story, it's a really nuanced, carefully researched story about sexual misconduct that needed to be done right in order to have an impact. And it has. I think you have gotten it right in a lot of the stories. But I also think that when people talk about the Me Too movement, that was a huge story in the U.S., but we had our huge story with Gion Kameshi mm-hmm. a number of years before that. Right. And so I sometimes get a little bit irritated when people are like, it started last year. And I'm like, no, we were having these conversations about how journalists were reporting on stories. We had a really high-profile case in Canada that really shook the Canadian community around talking about this. And it was also a member of the media. Right. And and this has been building in the way that it's influencing law enforcement. Robin, through the Unfounded series, you found that 30 to 50 percent of sexual assault cases reported to the police were being dismissed. 
Following your investigation by The Globe, there's been a massive response. Public safety ministers have started to develop a national strategy to deal with sexual assault cases. A recent Stats Can report shows that police forces in 62 jurisdictions across the country now report double-digit declines in the number of sexual assault cases dismissed as baseless. That's quite a response, Robin. What, what do you make of that incredible shift that has resulted from the series? In terms of Canadian police services, the change has been, it's hard to overstate the, the difference that that series made for them because of the public and political pressure. Gian Gomeshi is happening. Everyone's talking about Gian Gomeshi. Everyone's obsessed with this issue. And I'm on this investigative team at The Globe. And I was thinking, I wonder if there is a way to look at this from an investigative standpoint. Is the criminal justice system discriminatory against sexual assault complainants beyond just anecdotal one-off cases? And it's such a big topic. How do you really investigate that? And I eventually came across this study that talked about this thing called unfounded rates, which is essentially when police finish an investigation, if they think that it, it's not a real investigation, that the complaint didn't happen, it's baseless or it's false, they give it this unfounded designation and then it doesn't count in their statistics. It's not real. It's invalid. And when I read that this was happening, I, one, was surprised because I'd never heard of it before. And two, I thought, well, this seems to be the most obvious way to prove whether sexual assault cases are being disproportionately dismissed. So I collected all these numbers and nationally, the unfounded rate was 20%. So one in five complaints were being dismissed. But, you know, in well over 100 communities, I think 115 communities, at least a third of complaints were being dismissed. So the series was called Unfounded and it really, it was built on this foundation of data. But what it was really about is how police are not properly handling all sexual assault cases. I'm not saying every single sexual assault case, but by all, I mean all different types. And before the series ran, I emailed all the police services, 177 of them. I went to all of them and I outlined exactly what was in my series. I went, this is your unfounded rate. This is what the national unfounded rate is. These are the problems I find with the cases. You know, they're not being investigated properly. They're being closed before witnesses are being investigated or being questioned, yada, yada, yada. And it was radio silence. I think 10 police services sent me responses to my questions. And after the series ran, it was like overnight change. And it was partly because ministers in various levels of government were demanding that they change. The reason I'm mentioning that I sent them an email before was that it's not like anything in my series was a remote surprise. I laid it all out. It was like I want to say like a 2,000 word email. <laughs> and overnight they changed. So so we've had, you know, more than 30,000 cases being reviewed. Hundreds have been reopened. I know of at least a dozen that have resulted in charges. So this is a case that was like dismissed as false that now someone has been arrested. Half of the country is now being policed by a service that is rolling out or has rolled out specialized sexual assault tr training that has a trauma-informed approach. And half of the country is being policed by a service that has adopted civilian case review. So those working in the violence against women field are being invited to review raw police files to look for signs of bias and investigative missteps. So in terms of what's happening in Canada, it's pretty radical compared to other places in the world. And it is totally related to media and political pressure. And feminist organizing. Totally. I mean, my work is built off of the work that these organizations and advocates have been pushing forever. I guess that's part of what I find interesting. It's not like any of these ideas are new. They've been around for decades. And then it was with this kind of 
political media push that suddenly, okay, we better do this now. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think that the desire to do better is real. I think what I've seen is there are voices within police services across the country that have been calling for some of these reforms that haven't had the ability or the space to make them happen. And then after there was all this pressure, they were given kind of carte blanche to go forward. I'm not saying every police service is doing mm-hmm. this, but there has been, I think, a genuine push. But I think that story or that series that you did was one of the reasons why I have a lot more faith in the media around some of these conversations, because we need to be working together. Feminist work and organizing around this can only go so far sometimes. We need partners. I'd like to hear your thoughts on how social media factors in. Farah, can you comment on the role social media has played in the Me Too movement? Oh, I remember the day that the Me Too kind of tweets started going out. And Me Too was a hashtag that was created by Tarana Burke Mm -hmm. over a decade ago to talk specifically about the impact of sexual violence on Black women and to give voice to survivors. But then when it was raised, when Alyssa Milano, I believe, put out a tweet just in like past November, I remember being in my house, seeing people starting to post, and I was like, "Mm, I don't want to see that right now, and Mm -hmm. just shut down my computer. And it took till the next day to really see that this was popping up because we've seen that, right? We saw never been raped, never reported. We've seen... I believe survivors. Yeah, we yeah. believe survivors, which yeah. I challenge now around that hashtag. Sometimes I feel weird about that survive, mm-hmm. that one. So I didn't want to see it because I was just like, this is a lot. And so as someone who works in the field sometimes, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a lot for people to be immersed mm-hmm. in this kind of trauma. And so I think social media can be fantastic in a place for folks that have been affected by sexual violence to have an opportunity to connect with their peers or to say to someone, yeah, I'm not alone. There's other people. Me too is a really important even thing to say that it's not something that I have to hold shame and blame. I think it was really fantastic in the conversations around Me Too. We saw men take up that conversation. I can talk to a group of young men now about sexual violence in a very different way because of Terry Crews. Because the fact right. that Terry Crews talked right. about the sexual assault that occurred to him and his PTSD and the reaction that he had. So the fact that he froze. And when 50 Cent tried to drag him on Instagram and say, like, you're not a real man, you know, call him all these names to have him kind of break down what a trauma reaction is when sexual violence happens. So it's been really powerful in that way. I think also it's been used to manipulate harm and shame survivors, but also to manipulate a movement to meet person needs. I can I see that often. And sometimes I also think that we have to also remember that this is for some of us, this is the work that we do on a daily basis. And sometimes I I see people and they're like, Why aren't you saying something about this or this? And I'm like, we need also to have breaks from these conversations. And I don't think we're meant to be so immersed all the time in this. And I think just the trauma exposure people have on social media on a consistent basis, but many topics, mm-hmm. it's a lot for people. So I'll end on one more question, which is, where does the Me Too movement go from here? And what kind of change do you think is coming? I am writing a book that is exploring this kind of this reckoning that's happening. And the thing I'm really interested in is how the Me Too movement and these demands to reform our criminal justice system are kind of working together and clashing because you see this a lot. The the big complaint about the Me Too movement is there's no due process in the Me Too movement. And you can't have due process 
in the Me Too movement. Due process is about, you know, giving someone the right to a, a fair trial. But what if like much of these the things that we're talking about with Me Too don't rise to the threshold of criminal conduct? So when someone's alleging, you know, that their boss is hitting on them and making them uncomfortable and they had to quit their job, telling her to go to the police is not helpful. And are we saying that women aren't able to talk about the shit that's happening to them at work or in their lives unless they have, you know, video evidence of it. That's not realistic if you ever want things to change. At the same time, I think there are real questions about the fairness of someone making an allegation on a Monday morning and then on a Monday evening that individual, the subject of their allegation is packing up their desk. I don't think we necessarily want to live in that world either. So it's really complicated and murky. And I think it's really, I, th I think people are kind of nervous about having these conversations because you don't want to be branded as a victim blamer or not with it or, you know, a, a right wing, crazy, conservative, misogynist, blah, 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 blah. So we're just trying to navigate all of these things. I think there's a couple of things that I'd like to see. I'm worried sometimes that we pour money into an issue and then when it's not seen as relevant or important anymore, that that money dries up. And so I worry about the sustainable funding of rape crisis centers and sexual assault centers across Canada. I worry about that on campuses because we've created these offices on campuses. But, you know, there's a change of government. There's a change of leadership sometimes. And we don't know if that funding is going to be sustainable. And so that worries me because we set up this idea that we're here for survivors but then at some point that funding or that process goes. In terms of a Me Too movement, I think there's multiple movements to end sexual violence. I don't think all of them have to do with the police services. I think majority of people don't go to the police. So I'm kind of interested in talking about, okay, so if we're not going to the police, so many of us aren't, how do we invest our time and resources in other ways to address this? Not just healing individually, but healing collectively. How do we, when we know somebody who's done something really crappy and we're like not down with their behavior, how do we call them in? So I'm not saying like this rapist island exists and they're all going to go live on it, <laughs> but actually like people that we care about, people we love, do mess up things, including ourselves. And so how are we going to deal with that and grapple with that and give each other tools? And so I'm interested in that piece. And the last thing that kind of excites me about this is that we're having a conversation for the first time, I think in a long time, about the impact of this. That the impact is not just a one-time thing. It's not episodic, like you're sexually assaulted and it's done. It's a long-term piece. So how are we going to build a world that recognizes that so many of us have been harmed and that a trauma-informed world, instead of saying it's, you know, it's just a special interest group. It's actually not. It's so many of us. Mm -hmm. It's one in three women and one in six men. So I'm interested in this being it. So there's lots of things I'm down with. Uh, I am also nervous about how we're moving too, because I do see it being utilized in ways that I don't agree with. I worry about this idea that there's quick fixes to it as well, because mm -hmm. it's not a quick fix. It's a conversation that is ongoing. The one thing that I'm interested in for university campuses is a larger conversation about child sexual abuse and sexual assault of, of children and youth. We know that 55% of the cases that go to police are young people under the age of 17, zero to 17. And if we're going to talk about addressing sexual violence on campuses, we got to deal with what's happening in high schools and grade schools and got to work with that group. So there's lots of things that we can be doing. It's just if we're going to continue to do them and put those resources in there. You know, we've really only scratched the surface of this important discussion. Thank you so much for both being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. 
To find out more, read the Unfounded series by Robin Doolittle in The Globe and Mail, and watch for her book, Had It Coming, out in 2019. For more information about Ryerson's Consent Comes First office and its services, visit ryerson.ca slash consent comes first. Thanks for listening to the Ryerson Today podcast. For more campus news, visit ryerson.ca slash news dash events. This podcast was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at the RTA School of Media in the Faculty of Communication and Design.